Okay, we'll get going. Welcome to Sunday School, first of 2023. Welcome, particularly if you're here for the first time, if this is your debut, um, then uh, a very warm welcome, a warmish welcome. Conservative only gets semi-warm, so, you know, warmish welcome. Um, the, way, the way Sunday School works is that for about half an hour or so, 30, 40 minutes, um, we'll have a bit of back and forth. I'm going to do some teaching from the front, and then we'll have discussion round tables. Um, there's... I think there are croissants, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah there are. Okay, brilliant. You've all got them. Um, and um, we'll make sure we're all kind of wrapped up by about ten past in order to be able to go through for the service. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father in heaven, um, thank you for a new year. Um, thank you for the grace that you showed us in 2022. And thank you that we can meet uh, in safety as your people. Uh, here at the beginning of 23 and we pray that you would do good to us and to the children next door we pray for them as they grow up um, uh, your children ultimately even more than they are ours um, that you would disciple them nurture them in the faith pray for their teachers this morning uh, give them patience and, and grace and wisdom and skill as they look after little ones pray for each one of those children that they would grow up to be a wholehearted disciple of Christ and we pray the same for us would you fan our faith our hope our love increasingly into uh, a roaring flame uh, this morning. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, one of the things we often do in Sunday school is cover topics that are maybe a little bit harder to preach on. Um, so things that work better in a more of a kind of seminary format. Uh, and this term, or at least the first half of the term at the very least, uh, we're going to think about the story of the Bible, how the Bible fits together. Uh, I'm aware there'll be different levels of kind of experience of the Bible in the room, some of you very used to it, some of you quite new to it. And when you first come to the Bible, there, there's a number of ways you can approach it. I put some examples down there on the sheet. Um, sometimes we, we approach it just like a library. You'll know perhaps the Bible is a collection of 66 individual books. And so at first glance, it could seem that, that here are 66 sort of essentially separate books, all of which perhaps tell us a bit about God and the gospel and but basically they're kind of independent and they're more like the theology section in the library 66 separate albeit kind of themed about god type books on the other hand we might think of it uh, some people come to the bible more like a textbook we want to mine it for doctrines we want to sort of work out what the bible is on the whole talk says about god or sin or salvation or humanity or heaven or hell or whatever it may be and so we the Bible becomes a kind of a resource for finding verses that tell us the truth about particular things we're interested in. Or perhaps just kind of more practically, week to week, day to day, uh, we know the Bible is the word of God, and so we want, we want it to feed us, and so it becomes almost like a lucky dip. Um, do you remember lucky dips when you were a kid? You know, there'd be kind of a box full of, like, shredded paper or something, and you put your hand in, and each kid pulls out a present. You don't know what, quite what's going to come. And associated with the Bible, we open it, and we pick our favourite psalm, or we... Perhaps we open it totally at random. Lord, give me a verse for the day. We open it and we dive in. And Now, all those approaches have got truth to them. And ultimately, the Bible's a living, breathing book. So it can do good to us because, uh, because it is the word of God, however we approach it. But what it's easy to miss is the Bible is a story. Ultimately, the Bible tells a story. There is a coherence, um, a narrative, an arc, if you like, that runs from Genesis through to Revelation. Uh, what's confusing is the way the Bible books are organised is not quite in order. So it doesn't just work um, to read 
from Genesis 1 verse 1 right the way through to Revelation 22, um, as if the whole thing sort of fits perfectly in order. And so hopefully this, this term, or this series at least, will help understand the story and the way that the Bible uh, fits together. Um, of course, we can't cover everything. Okay, it's a big book, and there's no way you can cover everything. So one of the challenges of doing this kind of Bible overview, as it's sometimes called, is deciding what to leave in and what, what, to, um, what to take out, what you're going to sort of skip over. And so the theme, and I, you, could, you could pick a thousand themes. Um, I remember being in, in one lecture at Bible College, and the lecturer suddenly paired us up, and he said to us, right, you two, tell the story of the Bible, just in pairs for two minutes, tell the story of Bibles using the theme of trumpets. You two, you've got the theme of sweat. Um, you two, on and on it went. You two have got bread. You two have... And you're kind of like, Whoa. But actually, you can do it. Think long and hard. You can do it. There's all sorts of ways you can stitch the Bible together. The theme we're going to use this term is what I've called the Emmanuel theme. Right at the top of your sheet, Matthew 123. Uh, the uh, famous verse... Uh, about the birth of Christ. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, Mary will conceive, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the things we'll see is that right the way through Scripture, really from Genesis through to Revelation, a repeated note keeps get sounding. You know, if you go to a, oh, I don't know, a musical or an opera or watch a film, often there's the same kind of theme that comes back and back again the Lord of the Rings theme, and you hear it again at different moments in the film. And, and, and it's a bit like that with this Emmanuel principle. I will be their God and they will be, um, they will be my people. And so that, that's the theme that we're going to use to, to sort of navigate our way through uh, the scriptures. So I hope we all get the story straight, because I know I've talked with a number of you and, and you're keen just to understand what on earth is going on, particularly once we get into the, kind of the history of Israel and the Old Testament, it all gets a bit murky. So we'll try and get the story straight, but whilst focusing on this theme of God and his people, God's relationship with his people, uh, the Emmanuel principle. Um, So let's dive in, and Genesis 1, an unsurprising place to start. And obviously relatively familiar territory, so I'm not going to spend absolutely hours working through the parts of Scripture that are more familiar to us. Genesis 1, in the beginning. Let's just at least get our, 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 uh, our bearings, though. In the beginning... God. That's how scripture begins. In the beginning, God. The universe isn't eternal. The world isn't eternal. Time isn't eternal. So time hasn't always existed. That's a bit of a headbender, isn't it? But in the same way as God created space, stuff, and matter, he also created time. And so there was no time before God spoke those words in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Until he started speaking creation, there was no time. It's not like God was sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting for, I don't know, millennia or tens of billions of years. And at one moment in his existence thought, do you know what, I'll make a world. God doesn't exist in time. Again, it's mind-bending, isn't it? But just as he, he isn't contained in the universe, the universe is something outside of him. In the beginning, God was there, not in time space and he's not made of stuff he doesn't uh, when we say god is a spirit he's not made of kind of particles or something like that he's not kind of gas or just god was there on his own he is eternal the universe isn't and he's fine on his own as we we read more about god as the bible story goes on he's described as the blessed god essentially the happy god he doesn't need anything he doesn't lack anything 
So in those first few words of Genesis, in the beginning God, the God we're meeting is not a God who needs to create. He is, as he says to Moses later, um, I am, that's his name, I am who I am. He doesn't rely on anything. He's not lonely, he's not hungry, he's not bored. He doesn't need worshippers to increase his glory or something. He is there, he's happy, he's content, he's fulfilled. And already that's good news. It means that when he creates us and enters into these relationships with us, it's entirely for our benefit. He's got nothing to gain by creating us or making us or saving us or entering into a relationship with us. And sometimes if, you, if you've been in the kind of reformed world or read John Piper books or whatever it may be, you'll know that a common theme is um, to hammer home that everything God does is for his glory. And that is true. As I'll look back on creation and salvation and say, it's not for your sake, but for my glory that I made you. It is true all the glory goes to God. But, but that shouldn't be misunderstood to mean that either he needed to make the world in order to sort of become glorious... All that in any way he gained by making the world. So you feel like all the credit goes to him, but he hasn't gained anything. The blessing is all ours. The gain is all ours. Neither should we think when we say that God made the world for his own glory, that we're somehow explaining why he did it. As if that's, well, of course he made it, because you know, he wanted to display his glory. He needed to do that. Put a quote down there on... Um, it's, 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 it's a Dutch guy quoting a North African guy, Bavin quoting Augustine, the great church father. Why did God create the world? The answer is because he so willed, because he wanted to. Those who proceed to ask about the cause of that will demand something greater than the will of God, but none such thing can be found. The ultimate reason that God made the world is because he decided to. And there's nothing more you can say, nothing deeper, no explanation. Because if you could give an explanation, a reason that kind of meant um, this is the logical reason why God made the world, then he would have had to do it. Okay, I had breakfast because if I don't eat, I slowly starve and die. So why did you have breakfast? To fuel yourself. But you can't give that kind of answer to why did God make the world. You can talk about the end results, what happens, now he's done it, but you can't explain why he did it in any way that gives the impression that he needed to do it. It is all gift. In other words. And so he creates. And he creates, you might have heard this expression, ex nihilo, there's a Latin expression, out of nothing. In the beginning, God created. So there isn't anything there. There's not kind of stuff floating around that he shapes into a world and stars and sheep and newts and things like that. There's nothing. And then he speaks. And that speaking is significant. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. It is simply God speaking his word, born on the Spirit. Notice the Spirit is there, hovering over the waters. So it seems in verses 1 and 2, he's created a kind of the stuff by this stage. In verse 2, sorry, verse 1. And the Spirit is there hovering, and it is then going to be shaped and formed and fashioned purely by his word carried by his spirit. Hints of the Trinity, aren't there? Let's unpack more in John 1, where we read that all things were made through the word, and the word turns out to be Jesus. And also, a description of the way that God constantly works. It is the Father who works through the Son by the power of the Spirit in creation, and that's what he's going to do in salvation. 
How is it that you came to be saved, to come, come to enter his new creation? Well, by the word of God being carried by the Spirit to bring you to life. And what God does in Genesis 1 is, is basically build a house. I'm not, we're not going to get sort of pulled into the, you know, is it literal days and 24 hours and how old is the universe, all that sort of stuff. But at the level of the story of Genesis 1, God is building a house and then filling it. So days 1, 2, 3, he creates the environment. Uh, so he separates the waters, uh, then he sort of pulls out the land and all the rest of it. And days 4, 5, 6, he fills them. Uh, that maps onto the problem that verse 2 set up. In verse 2 we read the earth, the, the, sort of the stuff that had been created, was without form and void, empty. And so in days 1 to 3, God forms everything. Okay, the, the heavens above, the earth below, the waters of the land, all the rest of it. And then 4, 5, 6, he fills them. And so days 1 and 4 match up, and 2 and 5 match up, and 3 and 6 match up. And essentially he's building a kind of house. Calvin talks about uh, God being like a parent, preparing a nursery uh, before the child is born. It's all heading towards the creation of man on the last day. In other words, we come on the scene already wealthy, already rich. We're born into a, just a glorious mansion uh, of a house. And we're made in the image of our father. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. So man and woman made in the image of God. To bear God's image means all sorts of things, reflecting what he does and who he is. But for our purposes, again, following this Emmanuel theme, at the very least, it means that we can relate to God. There is a way that human beings um, can know God that is beyond the reach of a squirrel or a tadpole or a goat or a baboon or whatever. Okay, there is a relational sort of match, as it were between us as images and God, uh, the originator. So chapter one is setting the scene, it's, the, it's setting the stage up, if you like, the home that man is going to be put in, uh, where God and man are meant to dwell together. And in Genesis two, we, we zoom in. This is the chapter that's, that I think is spoken about less often because perhaps we get so obsessed with the age of the earth stuff and the days and all the rest of it. So chapter two can seem uh, a little bit less relevant. Uh, even a bit mysterious. Uh, but this is where I want us to zoom in, and we're going to talk about this uh, as well around our tables. Uh, it may also be newer material. Um, let's think about the geography. Uh, God's made, made, the, made everything by the end of chapter one, and then chapter two we get a kind of zoomed in, more detailed account of the creation of man in particular. And also more about the environment. If you look down at chapter two, verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he'd formed so he's made the man outside the garden and then he makes this garden in eden notice not the garden of eden it's what we usually call it isn't it the garden of eden thinking that eden and the garden are the same thing so if we talk about the city of leeds the city and leeds are the same thing but no this is a city you know, if we said the city in leeds you, you'd think there's some sort of sub-bit of Leeds, a city in Yorkshire. The city isn't all of Yorkshire. Well, so too, the garden isn't all of Eden. It's a garden in a land called Eden. And it's on a mountain. Uh, we see that from verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden, okay, so the land, to water the garden. 
Okay, rivers flow downhill, obviously, get down. So we're, we're, we're high up. This mount, this garden, the land of Eden and the garden in it are high up. And we get that confirmed later on in all sorts of ways. Uh, one is Ezekiel 28. Um, I'm going to turn there. You can either join me or just, just listen. So Ezekiel 28. And God is speaking through the prophet about the, the fall of a king of Tyre. He's been compared to Adam and... We won't get stuck into the details, but it's equal 28. We read this. You were in Eden. So it's dressed as the son of man. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The list of all the precious stones we read about in Genesis 2. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. The holy mountain of God. Um, Eden is up on a mountain. That'll be significant <coughs> later on. Mountains are going to play a big part in the story, the way God tells the story. And so what we get in Genesis 2, if you like, are three zones. There's the garden with the tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's Eden and then there's the world. Three zones. That's going to be important okay, later on. Three zones. Garden, Eden, world. That's the kind of geography of Genesis 2. Why is it significant? It's showing us already that Adam and Eve are made and then put in a garden temple. This is what, again, as 21st century Gentiles, we're, we're likely to miss. But if you're a Jew reading Genesis 2 or hearing Moses teach it for the first time, uh, then you would, you would hear all sorts of echoes of temple in the description of the land. Uh, what is a temple or a tabernacle? We're on the back of the sheet now. You'll see a little diagram of the, um, what I've laid out as well. What is, a tabernacle or a temple, what are they? They're the meeting place between God and man. Well, so too is the garden in Eden. In chapter 3, verse 8, we hear about the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. That language of God walking is later applied to the, the tabernacle, the temple. The temple or the tabernacle is the place God and man can meet. The dwelling place of God on earth. The whole thing is set up, Eden is set up with the entrance on the east. So it's not just a garden you can walk into from every kind of corner. It's a, it's a kind of walled garden, well maybe not walled, but kind of hedged garden. And there's only one entrance, it's on the east. We read about that in chapter 3, 24. They're driven out to the east, that's where the entrance of the garden is. So too when the tabernacle, the tent where God dwells, is set up, it's set up with the entrance on the east. Um, the cherubim later guard the entrance to this garden sanctuary just as cherubim are sewn into the curtains of the temple the tabernacle the garden has the tree of life in it and when they build the tabernacle and the temple the, the kind of candlestick the light that's in the middle of it is shaped deliberately like a tree described as a tree uh, the garden's obviously full of fruit. God talks about all the trees. You can eat any of the fruit of any of the trees. And when they build the tabernacle and particularly the temple, the whole thing is decorated with fruit. Detailed instructions about carving fruit and making it all kind of garden-like. So both the description of the environment and indeed job, Adam's job description would make Israelite think temple and priest. So in chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is told... Um, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we tend to think, oh, he's a gardener, great, he's going to 
dig some turnips and prune some roses and all the rest of it. And that is no doubt true. But those work and keep, the keep is a kind of guarding word, work and guard, serve and guard, is the, the worship language that is applied later to the, to the priestly tribe, the Levites. Those two verbs come together later only in the description of what the, the Levites do in the tabernacle. So Eden, the garden in Eden in particular, is a tabernacle, a temple, a meeting place for God and his people. And that makes sense already of this Emmanuel theme that's going to run right the way through to Revelation 21, where, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, Eden is back, described again like a temple. So right from the beginning, God has made a dwelling place fit for him and his creatures, made in his image, to dwell together. Um, let me pause there. Any questions at this stage? I'll do one more thing and then you're going to do discussion. But any questions at this stage? Um, just how does Yep. Would it possibly be somewhat that, that when yep. they were given the instructions for the tabernacle, they were thinking back yeah. to the garden? Or that yeah, it does. I think it's, it's based both ways. Yeah. So the, the garden and the temple, and the temple and the garden um, are, yeah, they go both. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that is right. Um, but we're more likely to miss the nuance going this way, I think, because we start here, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's the case that, well, who, what's really hard to know is what did the Israelite, you know, what did Abraham know about Adam or Joseph know about Adam? Or We know Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books. So it's quite hard to know what they knew until then. Um, so we know that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy came into the form we have them now, basically in the era of Moses, by which time they've got the tabernacle. And so we know that way. you're almost certainly right they'd have known something coming forward as well but it's just a bit harder to to know what's going on yeah okay one more thing and then um, we're going to do stuff in tables so the the, the environment is set up creation is is, is this temple and we'll see the temple is meant to expand the Eden's meant to expand they're meant to go out and make the whole garden sorry the whole world more and more like Eden but it goes wrong very quickly so let's focus from the environment set up for them to the relationship. All the way through the Bible, you've heard me said before, probably if you've been around, uh, we never read about God having a relationship with his people. The language of relationship is just not in scripture because God's word for his relationship with us is covenant. And there is one of these covenants. There's clearly a relationship between God and Adam and Eve uh, written into Genesis 2. Now, I know the word covenant isn't in Genesis 2, but that needn't worry us. That needn't make us think there isn't a covenant there. Uh, why not? Well, just because a word isn't used doesn't mean the thing isn't there. So if you were to read Genesis 3, and then the preacher would say, you know, here's a description of the first sin. Isn't it awful how we rebel against God, the iniquity of Adam and Eve? You wouldn't think much, would you? If someone put their hand up and said, well, I don't see the word sin in Genesis 3. It's not there. There's no word for iniquity or transgression. There's no word for fall or rebellion. And so obviously we shouldn't call what goes on in Genesis 3 sin because the word isn't there. Okay, that would be a mad way of arguing. But some people get very uptight um, that because the word covenant isn't, isn't in Genesis 2, we mustn't talk about it. Um, what's particularly odd about that way of thinking, I, I think, is that 
We know in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve get married, and we know, because later in the Bible we're told in Malachi, that marriage is a covenant. So we know for sure there is a covenant being formed between Adam and Eve, and the word isn't used. So there's no need to kind of panic and think we shouldn't use it of the relationship between God and Adam, just because the exact word isn't there. And indeed, as I put on your sheet later on in Hosea, um, God looks back and talks about how Israel broke a covenant like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So I, I think we can call it a covenant very happily, even without the word being in the text of Genesis 2. Uh, what is this covenant? What is this relationship? Well, it's between God and man, God and Adam, and Adam's going to represent all of humanity. He's a king, not just an individual. He's a public figure, not just a private one. Again, that'll come into significance later on. And the terms, what, what is expected of man in, in Eden? Um, to use the language of the Westminster Confession, it's perfect, perpetual obedience. He is meant to obey perfectly. Now, obviously, that means don't take the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Uh, that is the um, negative command uh, given uh, in verse, um, chapter 2, uh, verse 16, 17. The day you eat of the, knowledge of, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But there have already, already been positive commands as well, aren't there? Adam's been told to work and guard the garden. They've been told to go forth and multiply, to subdue the earth. Okay, it's, it's spotless, it's sinless, there's no death or anything, but it still needs subduing. So we don't want to make the whole relationship about just not taking the fruit. Um, Adam also had to obey the positive commands given. In that way, he could have broken this relationship with God, broken this covenant, either by taking the fruit, and we see that's what they do do, or by just totally disobeying what God had told them to do. And again, we, we looked at this last term a little bit in Romans, but um, linked to this is the idea that the kind of the moral law, the way of life that honours God, reflects his character, is just written onto the heart of humanity. I think about uh, Romans 2, Paul talks about the, um, those who don't have the law have it written on their hearts. You don't need the Bible to know that you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't steal. So very obviously, um, if Adam had murdered Eve and then God turned up in the garden, Adam wouldn't be able to say, well, look, you didn't tell me not to. Where's the text, Lord, that says do not murder? No, what is, what is, what is um, binding on Adam is this moral law of God. Summarise the Ten Commandments a bit later as well as the positive commands of fill the earth and don't take the fruit of the tree. And what's crucial at this stage is that's not gospel. Okay, that is not the gospel. Uh, Adam and Eve hear nothing about grace and mercy because grace and mercy aren't our right, are they? Here, here they are under the law. Okay, they're living as they ought to live. And that's not harsh, that's just fair. Okay, there's, nothing, um, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with Adam and Eve. They're not, um, well, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but they're not, they're not sinful. God has made a good world. Um, put them in it. And he requires of them simply that they do what he says. Obey him. So, with that in mind, there's a temple environment built for God and man. Temple of Eden, so we can be together. And the, the, the terms of the relationship... Listen and do what God says. Round table, three questions. Could Adam sin and could he die? 
okay, in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, what do you think we're meant to learn about God's character from Genesis 1 and 2? And try and think a little bit about the Emmanuel principle. What does it teach us about the idea of God and man dwelling together? And if you get time, have a little read of those verses and see how they picture the gospel. Um, round tables, off you go. Okay, let's, let's wrap up. Just run through one or two things there. Uh, what do you reckon? Could Adam sin? Yes or no? Could Adam sin? Yes. Okay, and what? Yes and no. What, go on, how do you mean? Well, it's definitely, you're definitely going to have got the right answer, aren't you? Um, <laughs> Okay, yes, because, I mean, obviously he does, okay? But why are you saying and no? What's the and no doing? <laughs> um, yeah, you, you didn't have to sin at that point. You had an fallen nature. Great. Yeah, brilliant. That's really important. So, yes, he obviously could sin, he does. So, but um, what's really important is he's not, he's not built faulty, okay? He's made good. So he doesn't... He doesn't have to sin. Okay, he's, he's not made sinful or made broken or made in a way that um, uh, through no fault of his own, um, he couldn't help but take the fruit. Okay, that's really important. I know there's mystery there. I know God knows what's going to happen. I know he's planned the end from the beginning. I know all those things. But it's really important we see that Adam is made good, very good, in fact, by the end of the, uh, uh, the creation week. Um, the guilt, the responsibility for sin is going to lay with us, not God. He hasn't built a kind of, you know, a duff car that's got a few nuts loose and so it's bound to go wrong as soon as you drive off the forecourt. Adam is both able to sin and able not to sin at this stage, pre-fall. Now, after the fall, we're unable to do anything but sin until we're saved. But at this stage, he could sin or he could not sin. One in. Yeah. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> because he's, he's sinned, yeah. that means he had the capability of sin in him. So then does that not mean that he can then not, not sin? <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> that last bit, like, I, I, it's too early. I can't. Um, so he must sin? No, he doesn't have to sin. You, that's what we've got to not say. And I know this is mysterious. This, this is what I'm trying to get at. And that's why we need to think a little bit carefully about it. So... Um, he is not he's not bound to sin by his nature he is able if you like to go both ways um, and that's really important so if you if you get rid of the idea that oh because the world is um, perfect we sometimes say it's perfect um, therefore it's impossible for him to sin obviously that makes a nonsense of the text he does sin but if you get rid of the idea that um, he was able to obey the commandments. In other words, if you think that he's bound to sin, that there's something in there that makes, then basically you've made God the author of sin. It's, it's his fault. Um, he has created a sinful being. But God can't create sinful beings. Now, a great mystery is where does, where does evil come from? And we'll think about that a bit next week. Um, there's not really an answer, but <laughs> we'll think about it a bit. Um, yeah, remind me if we don't, but yeah. So it's similar with the die, with the die thing. Could he die? Um, he obviously can die if he sins he will die that's the threat of Genesis 2 hello um, that's the threat of Genesis 2 if you take the fruit you will die so it's possible for him to die 
But it's also possible that he'll live forever. If he doesn't sin, he won't die. So death isn't part of creation. Death comes in as a punishment for creation. There's no death woven in. Death isn't natural in that sense. Um, we need to be quick. Let me just say a couple of things on the last two. Um, part of the point of all this temple, tabernacle language woven in is to say that God has this great desire to share himself, to be with his people. Right from the first page of scripture, he, his desire is to be with us more than our desire is ever to be with him, uh, which is incredibly good news. That's right there on the, the first pages of the Bible. He wants to be with us. It's all him. And there's even a little gospel picture, I think, in Genesis 2, that the man, I think what happens to him, here's Adam. He's put to sleep, put to death, as it were. His side is pierced. From it, the bride comes. Um, he's then woken up, raised, and the two are united, become one. Um, and there's no shame as a result. Now, later in Ephesians 5, Paul will say, Adam and Eve is a picture of Christ and the church. And the more we think about it, the more wonderful a picture it is. What happens when the second Adam, as Jesus is called, comes on stage, the last Adam, rather? Well, he comes on the stage. He, too, is, sleeps the sleep of death. His side is pierced from it. The blood, the water that flows from it comes his bride. From it comes the church. He leaves his father and mother, you know, doesn't have a mother, he leaves his father above, comes down, sleep, pierced, bride, the two are united, all that is Christ is shared with us, and there is no shame, we're together with him forever. So there's a little gospel picture even woven in to Genesis 2. Let me pray, and then we'll head next door. Um, it'd be good if you're not on, some people can help tidy up, but everyone else, would be great just to get next door, and ideally sit at the far side so that late people can sneak in um, the near side. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we, if we're honest, we take the blessing of being able to live with you um, lightly. We are excited about all the gifts of creation and um, our, our minds are so easily pulled off. Um, you, our creator, our father. And so we pray you forgive us our sin. Uh, again, thank you that you're full of mercy. Uh, and grow in us a desire, a delight um, to be in your presence, to know you are longing a deep down desire to know that, that one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So forgive us where we fall short and pour your spirit on us. Make us real temples of the Holy Spirit, we pray, and fan that desire into flame. We pray that would be done even this morning as we gather, uh, led by the Lord Jesus to worship you now. Bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.